Once again, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Let us now hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word today, and we pray, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. We are here as your servants, as those created by you to glorify you, to serve you, to love you, and to know you. And so we come before you this evening, Lord, and ask that through the Bible, through your inspired word, that you would speak to our hearts tonight in the way that only you can. Help us to understand these great foundational truths that we have here in the book of Genesis so that we can know you, our creator, and so that we can know ourselves as your creations. We pray your blessing now on this time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest pieces of art in history is Michelangelo's David. It is a marble sculpture that was crafted from 1501 to 1504 by the Italian Renaissance artist Michelangelo, or Michelangelo, if you please. The statue was commissioned to be uh, placed in a cathedral in Florence, Italy. It is renowned for its realistic nature, its detail, it's massive, it's huge. It is a statue of David. It is Michelangelo trying to represent the biblical figure of David. It is impressive in its detail. You can see the kind of the veins in the hand or the arm of the statue, and it looks very real. Uh, it looks like a person, and so it is renowned as one of the most recognizable and impressive pieces, not only of sculpture, but of art in the history of the world. But as impressive as Michelangelo's David is on the level of art, it's dead. <laughs> There's no life. It's just a marble statue. It's a sculpture of stone, and it cannot compare to God's masterpiece, here in Genesis chapter 1, man. God creates man here on the second half of day 6, living, breathing, thinking, relating to God. It is his masterpiece, the crown of his creation. Now, on one level, we should say that everything that God has created is a masterpiece, right? The stars that he made, the sun and the moon, uh, the fish in the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the land, all these things are amazing that God created. But the crown of God's creation is man. It's mankind. We come now to the culmination of God's creative work here in the creation week of Genesis chapter 1, and we come to what is God's masterpiece, and that is man. We want to think about 
Genesis 1, 26-27 now, and God's creation of man as in his image. So this study is going to focus not just on the creation of man, but particularly on man as being created in the image of God. And so we want to think about all that that means, because this is such a fundamental and basic concept in the Bible, and it's one that begins here in Genesis, and you find it in the rest of the Bible as well. So we are going to focus here on man as being created in the image of God. So we're going to cover five areas on Sunday evening as we think about man being created in the image of God. First of all, we'll talk about the creation itself of man in a special way in God's image here. That's number one. Number two, we'll talk about the nature of the image of God. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean that we are created in the image of God? We'll explore that. Number three, what is the purpose behind us being created in the image of God? Number four, we'll talk about the corruption of the image of God in man through the fall. And then number five, we'll talk about the restoration of man in the image of God in salvation through Jesus Christ. Let's set the context for where we are here in Genesis chapter 1. In our last few studies, we covered the creation of the dinosaurs and how we should think about those creatures. But prior to that, we covered the first half of the sixth day of creation. You find that here in verses 24 to 25. What does God do on the first half of day number six? He creates the land animals. So God creates the animals that he wants to inhabit the dry land. And this is everything from domestic cattle to little creeping things like mice to the wild beasts of the earth like bears or wolves or lions and things like that. So in the first half of the sixth day, God populates the dry land that he has formed, that he has created and prepared, and he fills it with the land animals, these living creatures that their environment is the dry land. But this was only half of God's creative work on day six, right? There's more to come. In fact, the most important thing is to come on day number six, and that is the creation of Man. So now we turn our attention to the second half of the day and God's work of creating man. We're going to begin our study of man by considering the concept of the image of God, but I want to give you a preview of what we are going to cover. We're going to cover three main topics, although there'll be other things that we consider, but three main topics in the creation of man. The first is the image of God. The second is man's dominion over creation, and the third is God's blessing on man. So we're going to consider those three things, image, dominion, and blessing. And the first of those is image. That's where we're going to focus initially. Before we continue with our study here of verses 26 to 27, let's step back for just a minute and let's get the background here of the entire first chapter, where we've been and how all of this is leading up to this point in the story of creation. God has created the universe. He creates it initially in this formless and empty state, and then he begins setting about the work of dealing with that by providing form and order to his world and by then filling that world with life. Okay, so he creates the three spheres, the... Uh, seas, the sky, the dry land, and then he creates the animals that live in those areas, 
and he fills those areas with life. Now, in all of this, God has been preparing a home, not merely for sun and moon, not merely for creatures like land animals or fish or birds. He's been doing all this preparatory work for who? Why has God been doing what he's doing here? Well, on one level, he's doing these things to glorify himself, to bring glory to himself. But on another level, all of this is preparation for who? Man, right? God has prepared the environment. On day one, for example, what does he do? Let there be light and there's light. So God dispels the darkness so that man can see, so that man's world is illuminated. We can't function in complete darkness which is what the original creation was. On day number two, what does God do? He creates the sky or the heavens, creating this protective canopy around the world that, God, that man is going to live in. On day number three, he creates the dry land. Remember that? He separated the waters from the earth so that there would be a dry land for man to live upon. On day four, the Lord creates the heavenly luminaries, sun, moon, stars, so that man has warmth, so that man has light, and so that man can mark time by these. On days five and six, what does he do? He creates animals, and these are the animals over which man is going to have dominion. Man is going to rule over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the air, and over the beasts of the land that God created on days five and six. So you can see that all this work, in one sense, is preparatory for the coming of God's ruler on the earth, which is man. Furthermore, it's important that we recognize God's work here on day six as the culmination of his creation. Day six is the last day of creation, and what happens on that last day of creation is God creates man. This is where things have ultimately been heading, to the creation of the one who was to be God's delegated ruler of the world. It is only after the sixth day that God says things are what? Very good. Look at it, verse 31. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was what? It was very good. It wasn't just good. It was very good. Now, on all the previous days, we've seen that formula. God saw that it was good over and over again, right? Now on day six, we get very good. Why? Because things are complete now, and man, who is the crown of God's creation, is there to rule over the world that he has made. Now that we have the overall context here, let's dig into the first part of our study, and that is the actual description of the creation of man here in verses 26 to 27. First of all, let's consider the identity of the one who does the creating here. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Let's do a little bit of review little bit of Hebrew review. You want that, don't you? You want some Hebrew on a Sunday evening? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, the word translated God there in verse 26, then God said, is the Hebrew word, the only Hebrew word that is used here in chapter 1 to describe God, and that is Elohim. Elohim. 
And so this word, if you remember, we said, was in the plural. It is in the plural form. This is the creator God. And now we get another indication of the plurality of persons in this one creator God. Look at it, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Ah, interesting. You see the language of more than one person there. As God has this consultation, this deliberation with himself. And we would say with the other persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, if you read uh, Bible studies or commentaries or things like that, you might get all sorts of explanations of what this is about. Some say that God is speaking to the angelic beings here, but that's totally out of bounds, for man was not made in the image of the angels, right? Man was made in the image of God. Others would say this is the plural of majesty. That is to say, this is a rhetorical, linguistic way to speak, like how a king would speak. This is the royal we, if you will. But I don't believe that's the right explanation either. If we think about Genesis 1 in light of the entire Bible, and when we read and think about the entire Bible, we know there is one God, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can we read Genesis 1, 26, and forget about everything else that we've read in the Bible? We shouldn't. We shouldn't do that. So, granted, we don't find out everything we need to know about the Trinity in Genesis 1, 26. I understand that. But I do believe that the same God that is revealed in the rest of the Bible is here the Creator in the very beginning, and that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, divine trinity. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, questions five and six. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. Where did we get that from? Where did we get this idea that God is one, but is also three persons? We got it from the Bible. Now, you may have this summer a Jehovah's Witness show up at your door, and you need to know that they deny the doctrine of the Trinity, and you need to be ready to speak to it if given the opportunity. They shouldn't be the ones quoting the Bible to you and getting you all confused about who God is. No, you should know who your God is, and you should know how to go to the Scriptures and speak to and defend the doctrine of the Trinity. And the way you do that is to go to the Bible. The way you do that is to go to a place like Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and point to the plurality of the language that is used here. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. The doctrine of the Trinity, that there's one God in three persons, was not a doctrine invented by the church. It is a doctrine that comes directly from the scriptures. We got it from the Bible. In other words, all that scripture teaches about who God is, we put all of that together 
and seeking to do justice to all of it, say, there's one God in three persons. And that's what the Bible reveals to us. The only way to make sense of the entirety of the Bible in terms of who God is, is to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. Thus, we were not created by some abstract being. We were created by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father who sent the Son to be the Savior of the world because He loved the world is the Creator. The Son who gave His life on the cross for our sins is our Creator. The Holy Spirit who has regenerated us and caused us to be born again is our Creator. We are the creations, the special creations of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Moreover, you can see the special nature of man here, can't you? Notice how things change here in verse 26. This is the first time you have, if we can put it this way, an inter-Trinitarian consultation going on, right? Look at it again, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image. You see the deliberations here within the divine trinity. And that indicates to you the special nature of what's going on here. The special nature of man as the special creation of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew Henry puts it this way, quote, Now the word of command is turned into a word of consultation, end quote. What he means by that is, prior to this, you've had God saying, Let there be, and bang, it is. Let there be, and bang, it comes into existence. And now you have God saying, Let us make man in our image, speaking within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now notice number two. The divine word here in verse 26. Then God said. We've seen that emphasis here in chapter 1. Of the power of God's word. The creative power of God's word. But again we have something special and unique here. Previously God has spoken. And things just come into existence. But now God speaks this word of consultation. But he's going to create man in a special way. Now we get a specific description of it in chapter 2. So go over to chapter 2 and look at verse 7. Verse 7 of chapter 2 says, And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Ah, so you have something special here, right? You have something unique going on here. For the first time, you've got this consultation within the Godhead and a special type of creation for man. Now let us come to what the Creator has made. Of course, He makes man here on day six. Look at the language that's used. There's two words that's used in verses 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Make, asah, in Hebrew. Now, it basically means the same thing as the next word that we're going to see. But if you drop down to verse 27, you'll see the other word that's used. So God created, bara, 
man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All of that emphasizes that man is the special creation of God. In addition to that, look at the word man. In verse 26, let us make man. The Hebrew word there is Adam. Adam. That's where we get the proper name Adam from. It is simply a word that refers to mankind. Okay, so God is here the creator of man. Now, why should that be important to you? I realize I'm preaching to the choir tonight. At least I think I am. You never know. Why should that be significant to you? You know that already, don't you? You know that God created you. You know that God created Adam and Eve, that he created all human beings, that he is our creator. Why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, think about it this way, if I can illustrate it. What is your relationship to something you have created? Whether it's a painting or something you've authored, a book or an essay or something like that, something you made. You didn't make it ex nihilo, out of nothing, right? You used pre-existing material, but in a sense, on a human level, you created something. What is your relationship to that thing? Do you not have some sense of ownership over that? Don't you want to say, that's mine? I made that. So, for example, uh, yesterday, I worked on building my little garden wall out front. And I'm not very good at it, but if I actually get it done and it's not doing that and it doesn't collapse and it accomplishes the purpose, then I'm pretty proud of it. And I want to say, that's mine. I did that. Now, if you came over to my house and you said, well, look here, I don't like how you did that. And you started pulling those bricks apart piece by piece and you got it all out of level. That might upset me a, a touch. Because it took me a long time to get those silly bricks level and then put them on top of each other the way they're supposed to go. We feel that way, right? You make something, and if somebody comes along and just grabs it and seeks to do what they want to do with it, you say, no, 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 wait a second. That's what? That's mine. I made that, and I have ownership over that. We do that in our culture, right? There are these things called ownership rights, that if somebody creates something, Somebody else just can't come along and steal it from them or something like that. Well, what about us and God? If we are created beings, if God made us, and he did, if he's our creator, guess what that means? That means he owns you. That means you belong to him and you're accountable to him. That means you can't do as you please. You can't do as you see fit. You have to do as he pleases. You have to do as he sees fit. Why? Because he's your creator. Now, I realize that's very basic, but that's so very important, and people have lost sight of that today. People have rejected or ignored or downplayed the idea of creation and creator, and guess what it does? It disconnects us from our accountability to the one who made us. This is why this is of such foundational importance we are created, and that means we are accountable to our Creator. We have a Maker, and therefore we are responsible to Him. So now the question for you and for me is, are we fulfilling His purpose? The purpose for which He created us. 
Are we living our lives in such a way that we acknowledge in the way we talk, in the way we think, in the way we live, that God made us and we must do what He wants? That should be true in every area of life, no matter what it is. You have to ask yourself that question, am I doing the will of the one who made me because I'm accountable to him? Thus, I hope you can see just how important the doctrine of creation is. This first chapter of Genesis, of the entire Bible, is foundational. It is fundamental. If you don't believe chapter 1, then you're going to have all the rest of it askew. And it's not going to be where it needs to be. And your life is not going to be what it should be. Your theology, your doctrine, your teaching, out of whack. Why? Because you got the first chapter wrong. To fail to uphold, to believe, to defend, to promote the doctrine of creation is to disconnect ourselves and our society from the Creator to whom we are accountable. If we do that, what do we have left? If we say that God didn't make us, that He's not our Creator, what are we left with? Us. We are accountable to no one. We are accountable perhaps only to ourselves. And we see what a Pandora's box of evil gets opened up when man is not accountable to his Creator. Who will define what is right and good? Who will decide what we can and cannot do with ourselves if we have no Creator? Man will. And if you think about the history of the world as well as our present moment, right now, you know what evil man can do when he is disconnected from his Maker and accountability to his Creator. So, the Bible's doctrine of creation is not a secondary matter. It's not a tertiary doctrine that, well, okay, as long as you believe in Jesus, it doesn't matter if you really believe in creation or not. No, it doesn't work that way. It is of the utmost importance. Moreover, here at the end of verse 27, we find out that God created mankind as male and female. Verse 27, so God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. So here you learn that the word man is mankind, right? It's mankind, and mankind consists of male and female. Now, we've seen God in the creation week separating, dividing, and making distinctions. Yes? For example, go back here in chapter 1 and look at day number 1, verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light that it was good, and God what? He divided the light from the darkness. You see what he did there? He made a separation. He made a distinction between the light and the darkness, the day and the night. Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it what? Divide the waters from the waters. You see, God makes a separation. 
waters belong here, certain amount of water belongs here, certain amount of water goes here. God makes a distinction there. Or what about the creatures, the animals that God made? Look at oh, verse number 20. Then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures, and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded, here we go, according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind. So you've got the creation of the fish and the birds, but there's distinction, right? There's difference excuse me, between these creatures. They are made specially according to the type that they are or according to the kind that they are, and there's no blurring or confusion between those things. So, for example, elephants don't turn into minnows. Cheetahs don't turn into birds. They're different types of creatures made according to their kind, and they reproduce according to that kind. You see that order and those differences and distinctions that God makes. Now, verse 27 tells us that God made male and female. He makes distinction now. He doesn't make one androgynous being. He creates a man and he creates a woman. They share a common humanity. They are both human beings made in the image of God, but they are distinct. They are different. They are unique. So God creates male and female. There is unity, but there is no confusion. Our latest Supreme Court Justice, her name is Katanji Brown Jackson, in her confirmation hearing, she was questioned by Senator Marsha Blackburn. And Marsha Blackburn asked her this question at one point. She asked Judge Jackson, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Jackson responded, can I provide a definition? No. Blackburn says, yeah. Jackson responds again, I can't. Blackburn says, you can't. And Jackson says, mm, not in this context. I'm not a biologist. Why is that? Why did that woman fail to answer a question that has a very obvious answer to it? Why would she refuse to answer such a question? It's because the issues of male and female have become very controversial in our time, yes? Genesis 1.27, which is a, a basic, straightforward statement, is maybe one of the most controversial verses in all the Bible, right here in the 21st century. Did you ever think you'd live to see that day? Did you ever, live to, to, did you ever think you'd live to see the day when Genesis 1.27 would be something that might get you in trouble? I used to work for American Express, as you all know. And <laughs> if, if you're feeling devious and you want to roll truth grenades into a chat or um, whatever you call it, responding to an article or something like that, 
I could just take Genesis 127 and just post it there at American Express. And maybe you could at your workplace too. Is that safe? Might not be. You might get a talking to. Somebody might say, now why did you put that up there? What are you trying to say? What are you trying to get at? Well, the reason this has become controversial is because we live in a confused, perverse, and rebellious time. In the, be- in the beginning, God created men and women, making them unique but distinct from one another. A man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. But we now live in the age of the LGBT plus revolution where simple biblical statements like this are rejected and rebelled against. Genesis 127 now viewed as hateful or archaic expressions of unenlightened times. Did you ever think you would live to see a day where someone who would sit on the highest court of the land would hesitate to answer the question, what is a woman? It's amazing. Furthermore, in our day and time, we have witnessed the rise of the so-called transgender revolution. The idea here is that you can be a biological man or woman, but deep down inside, you're something different. So you're in the body of a male, but you really believe yourself or feel yourself to be a female, and thus the authentic thing to do, the honest thing to do, is seek to change yourself, your expression, or, sadly, your body to match how you feel inside. Now, we've always had this sort of thing with us, and the people who are caught up in all of this, who are rebelling against God in this way, they need the gospel. They need God's love. They need the call to repentance. They need help. They need compassion. They need all of those things. But what they don't need is for us to compromise and capitulate. What they don't need is for us to deny Genesis 127 and the doctrine of man, male and female, created in the image of God. Distinct. Special. This is a direct assault against what we have here in Genesis 1, 26-27. Transgender ideology is directly contrary contradictory to the truth that we are God's creation, we were made by God, and we cannot reshape ourselves into whatever we think we should be or into whatever we feel we are. No, we belong to God. Remember that? We're created by Him, we're accountable to Him, we're responsible to Him, and guess what? If we come into this world with the body that He gave us, that's what we are. That's who God made us to be. That's how He created us. And He wants us to learn to accept that, to love Him, and appreciate His good design, His good creation of us. Modern people need to hear that we were made by God. They were made by God as they are, and are thus accountable to conform to His will for their lives, rather than to seek to reshape themselves and their bodies according to their own will. What laid the foundation for such a thing as the transgender revolution? Where'd that come from? Well, one of the pieces of the foundation was Darwinian evolution. 
Because guess what Darwin did? He disconnected us from our creator. Now we're not the special creations of God made in his image, special purpose, special meaning behind all of that. No, we are merely the results of a naturalistic process, evolved, descended from apes. What did that do? It disconnected us from our creator. And now, what reason is there not to reshape yourself into whatever form you want to be in? There is no reason. If Darwin's theory is true, and it is not, then you can make yourself into whatever you want yourself to be. The doctrine of evolution is pernicious. It is evil. It's contrary to God's word. It's contrary to the doctrine of creation. It opened the door to the insanity that we see all around us today. We live in evil times, but we must be strong and stand on the truth of Genesis. We did not make ourselves, so we cannot reshape ourselves into whatever we desire to be. God is our creator, and we must therefore accept how he created us. And not just accept it like, okay, I guess I'll be a woman. I guess I'll be a man. I guess I'll be the person you made me to be. It sure is terrible. Sure wish you did it differently. <laughs> Sometimes we're guilty of that too, aren't we? Did you ever look in the mirror and think, ugh, I sure wish I looked like so-and-so. God, why didn't you make me look like her or like him? <laughs> I saw people in movies and TVs. There's one particular guy who shall remain nameless, and I always loved that guy's hair. I thought, how can I get my hair to do that? But I never could get my hair to do that. <laughs> But underneath that is a dissatisfaction with what God did. But you, my friend, are specially created. You're made by God uniquely. There's nobody like you. Yes, we all share a common humanity, but we're special creations of God. We're made in His image. And you ought to embrace and rejoice in who God has made you to be. It is a good thing. So we must stand firmly on the doctrine of creation and Genesis chapter 1 and remember that you were made special, that you were made in the image of God, and that means a lot. That's significant. Let that truth guide your life this week, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so stand in awe of what God has given you the ability to do and the ability to be, particularly for us, for we who are saved. Right? Because we fell into sin. We corrupted ourselves. We had the image of God was marred in us. But what did God do? He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, perfectly, to live for us, die for us, rise for us, to remake us, to restore the image of God in you and in me. You have much to be thankful for, much to rejoice over in how God created you. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we give you praise and thanks for who you made us to be. We were created special 
because we were made in your image. We were made to reflect you. We were made to be like you. Oh, we know that we didn't do that, not as we should, because of our sin. But nevertheless, we read here in chapter 1 of your original creative work and how you created Adam and Eve in your image. And we thank you and praise you for that. Lord, we pray that you would help us not just to have some idea, some doctrine of creation in our heads that has no effect on how we live, but a doctrine of creation in our hearts and our minds that guides our life so that we know this week we don't do what we want to do in rebellion against you. We do what you want us to do. You made us, and we're accountable to you. We're responsible to you because of that. Help us to remember this, Lord. Help us to remember this when we are tempted to sin, when we are tempted to go our own way and do our own thing. Remind us of you, our maker. Lord, I thank you for each person that's here, and I pray that you would impress upon their hearts the fact that you made them, and you made them as they are. There are certain things you gave them, and certain things you did not give them. And help them to be content with who you have made them to be, and not just content, but thankful. Thankful that you created them the way that you did. We give you thanks and praise, Lord, for all that you have taught us and all that you continue to teach us here in the pages of your word. And so we ask that as we leave this place, that you would help your word to be fruitful in our hearts and our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you leave tonight, may grace be with you. Amen.